Okay, so Chris, we're going to start, I think, with a cold open, and then we're going to sort of go into the body of the interview. Um, oh, hey, Jay. Uh, what's up? Oh, um, I was just going over the episode structure with Chris. Uh, Chris? Yeah, for episode 100. Remember, we wanted to do something special. Uh, dude, I know he's your best friend and all, but wouldn't it make more sense to wait until the X-Men 92 ongoing starts? What? Uh, to have Chris on. Oh, you thought I meant Chris Sims, didn't you? Didn't you? No. Uh, Anka? I mean, again, I love the guy, but he's going to be in the Emerald City episode in just a few nope. weeks. Do we even know any other Chris's? Miles, we know like 30 Chris's. Uh, okay. Everyone we know is named Chris. Uh, all right, well, I know it's not Chris Conroy because he's at DC. Chris Hastings? Closer, it is a writer. Roberson. Has, has he even done any X-Books? Not that I know of. Then who? Miles, Miles, come on, man. Follow your heart. Follow my... Wait, 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 wait. You're not talking... Mm-hmm. Dude. No way. Really? Really, really? Miles, it is my very great pleasure to introduce our guest for episode 100, Chris Claremont. Hello? Wh- wh- what? I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 100 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Yeah, so a couple of big milestones here, guys. This is episode number 100. We have somehow done three digits worth of these ridiculous, wonderful things. I feel like we've kind of gotten away with something. I feel like we have. And the other big milestone, of course, is that we have one of our personal heroes and the person without whom this podcast would not exist. By the magic of Skype. Chris Claremont. So, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. No, it is a total honor. This is great. I guess we can just dive into the interview. We've been covering your run for about, gosh, maybe the last year and a half, I think from like episode three or four. Uh, A little bit later than that. But yeah, because we did a little bit of Silver Age. But yeah, by and large, it's just been going through, you know, a few issues at a time, the stuff that you and then also Louise Simonson and a few other folks have written. And at this point, I think we're just up to the cusp of Inferno. So I guess something that's come up a lot recently, and especially in the last few months, is we've seen the line go from very narrow and specific, and with you as pretty much the sole architect of it, to a much wider line of books with a much wider range of writers. And we're hoping you could talk a bit about that process, you know, the growth of the X universe, how much input you had into the titles you were working on, what it was like to see it expand and grow. Well, just to clarify, first things, you also have a slight bit of my fingerprints in the Silver Age stuff because uh, I did make a couple of critical contributions to uh, the work that Roy Thomas and uh, Neil Adams were doing during their run in uh, the 60s. Oh, really? Yes. My fingerprints go way, way back, whether you like it or not. (laughs) What sort of stuff were you doing with Thomas's run in the 60s? Well, I was a gopher at Marvel. That's before they refined it to call unpaid office help interns. <laughs> Back then, we were just gophers. Go for coffee, go for this, go for that. <laughs> right. And um, Roy was trying to figure out how to resolve the confrontation between the Sentinels and the X-Men. I think we're in the late episode uh, issue 67 something around there wait were you the one who came up with cyclops convincing them to go fight the sun yeah <laughs> that is my favorite silver age plot point vulnerable sentinels and i said well the source of mutation is considered at that time to be the sun solar radiation <laughs> oh man in the earth so i said the logical way to approach 
robotic antagonists would be to say, if you want to get rid of mutations, you've got to get rid of the sun. Presumption being that the sun would actually be more than even the sentinels could deal with. Yeah, yeah, we've always gone back to that as basically our favorite single thing that happened in the Silver Age. I don't know. For me, it's a tough call between that and the time that Matt Murdock spent a year pretending to be his own twin brother. Oh, yeah, if you're going outside the X universe, totally. But... And so then, yeah, I mean, after after that... that was blind? That's interesting. No, his sighted twin brother. Um, he had a terrible white fedora and different sunglasses and insisted his name was Mike and then unceremoniously killed Mike off and refused to acknowledge it. Um, oh, it was God. kind of amazing. I have a horrible feeling I remember those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, I came back. I, I also got a plot credit on an Avengers issue where the Sentinels came back from the sun and picked up where they left off. And then after that, I guess the next big time they showed up under your run would have been when the X-Men went into space, like when Gene semi-died and semi-didn't uh, mm-hmm. in re-entry, right? Well, I was getting back into the scheme of things. Dave and I were just absolutely having a good time and, and just trying to figure out what crazy stuff we could do next that hopefully nobody would see coming. I can safely say that I don't think anybody saw the leprechauns coming. I, I love that plot point when they go to Cassidy Keep early on in your run. Oh, yeah. Well, again, we just done Dark Phoenix. Well, we just established Phoenix and made a primal change in the relationships of the X-Men. And Dave loved Nightcrawler. So what better way to throw a curve was in the middle of all this melodrama to throw in a bunch of uh, smart aleck leprechauns in Ireland. That was sort of the hallmark of the series. Try as much as possible on a regular basis to catch the audience by surprise and more importantly, blindside them with a story moment that nobody saw coming. The culmination, of course, of which was Dark Phoenix. Right, yeah. I mean, just the sheer scope of that coming out of, of so many sort of smaller, mostly more Earthbound adventures. I mean, you had, you know, the Starjammers and the Shi'ar and stuff showing up in bits and pieces, but Dark Phoenix was just this cosmic, epic amazingness. Well, and it had an unhappy ending, mm-hmm. which was back in the days before the internet and before uh, social media, um, everyone figured as... We ourselves did going into the structure of the of this story arc that we would not do anything to significantly change the second oldest romantic relationship in the Marvel universe, and then we killed off the redhead. Well, and that that raised that the stakes got so much. Attention, in no little reason because they were blindsided by it. It was what nobody'd seen coming. Yeah, I mean, I think these days that would have been teased on, you know, even mainstream news shows. Oh, like, yeah, no, that before. would have been that would not would have been on USA Today before the final order cutoff date for the issue. So yeah, three months out. That was the beauty of the the non media age. So speaking of the Dark Phoenix saga, one of the things that really fascinates me in in looking back at this stuff, and we've you know watched through the documentary, read a lot of interviews, is the interaction of the folks who were were writing the books at this time in editorial involvement. And Mm -hmm. the Dark Phoenix saga and the stuff that came out of it, especially the resurrection of Jean Grey, seems like kind of an epicenter of that. And one of the things I hadn't heard about until I was listening to the additional footage was the editorial fiat that Jean wasn't allowed to intersect or interact with Madeline Pryor on the page for something like a year. What was up with that? We were trying to make the best of a really, really bad situation. 
um, the whole reason for doing the Scott Madeline story in, originally was to provide a, a, a measure of closure for Scott. My, my goal at the time was to say to the X-Men and to the readers that when you become a member of the team, you are not bonded to skin tights for the rest of your life. <laughs> that as with everything that occurs in the, the sort of 10 years of adolescence and early 20s, it comes to an end and you move on to, for want of a better term, assume the, the responsibilities and realities of maturity, adulthood, whatever. Scott marrying Madeline and having a child, in a sense, was his culmination, the culmination of his years in the X-Men. That's why when he and Aurora duked it out for leadership of the team after they got back from Asgard, she won, even though she had no powers. Because no matter how Scott approached his responsibility as leader, in the back of his mind was, oh my gosh, I've got a wife, I've got a son, I have to take care of them. Yeah, like he didn't have the focus that was necessary that Aurora did have. Right. And my goal was to say that there is a turning point in every character's life where they decide it's time to move on. In a way, that's why I did the series Mechanics decades later with Kitty going to the University of Chicago. She was moving on and beginning the course of her life that would eventually lead her, for want of a better term, to the White House. Yeah, that, and that's actually probably one of my favorite of your stories from that era, like from the whole Extreme X-Men storyline. I loved mechanics. Yeah, likewise. But the thing was to replace the gene vacuum, we introduced Rachel, who we established originally in, in Days of Future Past as the person who's working with the team to send Kitty back. At the end of Days of Future Past, she and Kitty are the only two survivors that we know of. Now the question was, well, who's Rachel? Where did she come from? Well, Rachel is Jean's daughter, presumably by Scott, but as it turns out, not. The other half of her parentage is Phoenix, the Phoenix Force, if you will. I, I um, don't think I actually knew that. I'd always assumed it was just Scott from Earth 811 from that timeline. Nope. Wow, cool. He was the, I guess, stand-in father. But we set him up with a, a wife and child, and that was that. And then out of nowhere comes the genesis of X-Factor and the resurrection of Gene. And I actually pointed out to Jim Shooter that aside from resurrecting the fact that resurrecting Gene totally invalidates everything we did in, in 37 and subsequently, and essentially tells the readership that nobody dies in comics and, 
and suspense is all bullshit. Uh, there, we were ignoring um, a far more, for me, what, what I thought was a far more potentially interesting and, and positive uh, alternative, which was her big sister, Sarah. Because at that point, what I said to Jim was, if you bring Sarah into the team, You've got Scott and Madeline. He's married. He has a, do- a son. Fine. He can lead. But you now you have Bobby and Warren and Hank, who've basically been also Rans since the creation of the team because the focus has been on the Scott-Gene dynamic. If you bring back Gene, you're just resurrecting the past, and the other three guys are irrelevant sort of afterthoughts anyway. But if you bring in Sarah, she's a gray. She's got all sorts of potentials in terms of power and history, and she's unattached. And suddenly Warren and Bobby and Hank are players, not also Rens. And you could, you would have a much more positive, aggressive, emotional dynamic than the audience has been used to seeing and you could generate a point of view a perspective on the series that was unique yet totally both unique and totally different from what we'd seen in uncanny whereas if you just resurrect gene it's it's back to the Back to the origin again. Right. And I would have loved and, to have seen what that looked like. Well, Jim thought it, it, it was an idea with potential, and he liked the idea of Sarah and was perfectly willing to use her as a character in Uncanny at that point. But he'd already signed off on the resurrection of Gene, and he didn't want to go back on that. So the problem was she gets resurrected, Scott is immediately destroyed as a heroic character because of it. If for the simple reason that his old girlfriend shows up and the first thing he does is walk out on his wife and child. Yeah. It takes like a couple pages. A second thought. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the original script for the, for the pilot, for the premiere issue, there, there's the moment's hesitation or guilt. He just dumps her and goes, Without a, without, you know, I'll call you. Yeah, the critical difference in the, the published version for me was always that she was the one who said, if you walk out, don't come back, which made the fact that he didn't come back make slightly less of an absolutely character-breaking move for me Well, going forward. But, it, you know, I mean, everybody was acting out of character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, Louise and Walter came in and uh, we the decision we made was, she had to spend a year resurrecting the characters and the relationships and, and restoring them basically. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to do it without having to deal with the question of the X-Men because what you then had was, would be the same problem we faced in 37 
when the decision was, does Jean go to jail for planetary genocide or does she die? And my feeling was that if we put her in jail, then the next decade of X-Men issues is basically the X-Men plot to get Buster out of jail. They fail and try again or they succeed and, and then they're on the run being pursued by everybody and then she gets recaptured, put back in a jail and we're back to square one again. Yeah, either way, it just dominates the storyline for however long. And I wanted it to come to an end. And the way that you and Louise Simonson handled that sort of transitional period once uh, Louise Simonson took over X Factor, where you sort of had Madeline in your book and she had Scott and Jean in hers, that's actually one of the most fascinating things about that era for me, because it's clear that you guys were given a situation that would not have been your first choice, but you ended up turning it into something really unexpected and really cool, like the direction that Madeline went uh, with the X-Men in Australia, for instance. Yeah, it was just, I was just pissed off because it was, it it was a really good dramatic conclusion, but I felt that the the happy ending would have been more fun for me. As far as Scott and Madeline getting to go off and just be real people? Yeah. Because the the the, the frustration I felt in terms of the relationship with the readers was we could never have that that moment of honesty and legitimate drama again. Uh, the next time, you know, we, we could never get away with the headlines we used subsequently. We killed, we did it with Gene, dare we do it with Aurora, with Storm, kind of thing. The suspense went out of the book because everybody knew, well, we brought back Gene, so, we'll, you know. And and the culmination, in a way, was when Wolverine died uh, during my run on uh, Nightcrawler last year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was given a, a memorial issue, and my my first instinct for the rem- memorial issue was to do just Nightcrawler goes around gathering up all his friends from you know the old days. And they go up to the top of the hill overlooking the mansion on the estate and light a bonfire and just tell Wolverine stories all night. And we, I would do a sequence of two-page, three-page short stories of, of Logan's history from the perspective of each of the storytellers. And hopefully, gradually, the audience would realize that everyone who's telling a story whether it's Kurt or Kitty or Betsy or Peter or Rachel has died and been resurrected. Yeah. The punchline of the end was basically they're all saying they're starting a raffle as to how long it'll be before he comes back. (laughs) (laughs) And Nightcrawler's point is, you sure about this? He's in heaven with the redhead. <laughs> well, Why would he want to? Yeah, you know? and I remember when when so Nightcrawler you could leave it from that perspective. But that's it. It was felt that was perhaps a little too disingenuous for uh, a dramatic memorial to Wolverine. Right. If Marvel was really trying to sell that, no, this time it's permanent. We swear. Oh yeah, you mean the fact that. 
that six months ago the X-Men just charged into heaven and rescued Nightcrawler whether he wanted to or not. Right, yeah. Doesn't factor into this at all. (laughs) You were talking earlier about sort of the, the plans you had for Scott and Madeline getting derailed, but then I know you later sort of turned that into what would ultimately culminate in Inferno. So I guess that's something that, as we've covered your work throughout the show, has come up uh, time and again, which is just your tendency to lay the seeds of a plot way, way before it comes to fruition, so that it just seems natural once it does happen. So Mm -hmm. I guess as far as those long game decisions, as far as planting those seeds, like, you know, uh, Nase showing up uh, when Storm loses her powers and later uh, Mm -hmm. manifesting as the adversary... How many of those uh, plot lines are ones where you knew exactly where they were going to go? and or, or sometimes is it just a matter of, hey, I, I planted these cool seeds. I wonder what I could do with them. No, I think in that instance, this is me and Wheezy and Walter sitting down and figuring out how where is this all going to go so we wouldn't trip over each other's feet. I mean, it was fairly easy because we've been doing it for three years with her as editor of X-Men four years, five years. So it was just laying out the basic overall structure that we would culminate in this. And then how would we get there? And then at what point would the teams team up to, to uh, fulfill the story arc? So like I said, we, we just laid out the broad strokes and focused in completely once we knew how, when, when everything would come together and then how it would end integrating, um, I guess, Thor and uh, Excalibur, the new mutants into the overall mess. Yeah. I mean, that sort of seems like a, a masterclass and how to juggle all of these plates and somehow keep them all spinning in a way that looks perfectly deliberate and comes together in a really satisfying way. Yeah, the, the choreography well, it, is amazing. It had the advantage of being just the two of us, basically, Wheezy and me. The disadvantage with it over the years has been, for me, as a creator and to a certain extent as a reader, as the, I guess, the X-Men omniverse has expanded and encompassed not more than one editorial group and more than certainly a, a clutch of, of major writers, it gets far more complicated. And suddenly the, the crossovers become more important than the ongoing story arcs in the individual series. And there's never there doesn't seem to be as much development and focus on the end on the characters as people rather than as, as instruments of, of a greater plot structure. Yeah. From what I understand the, um, I know the crossovers became sort of a mandated thing pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Cause they sold. So building on that after a very, very long run, We've come back a number of times at different points in the, the X-Men franchise on different titles relative mm-hmm. to the line. What's it like to revisit characters who you've created after they've been in other writers' hands for a while? For the most part, it's okay. It's, it's disconcerting, for example, with Kitty, 
Warren wanted her involved with Pete Wisdom, but she was underage and that was inappropriate. Yeah, she would have been yeah. like, what, 16 or so at that point? Not even. She was 15 and a half. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, she turned 16 in the middle of that. That was the whole, that was the whole giggle about uh, one of the last issues that Alan and I did on Excalibur where Courtney, who was really Saturnine in disguise, for want of a better term, seduces Kitty on her birthday. I actually want to spin off that really quickly because that brings me to another question that's come up a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I came into the X-Men as a queer teenager and mm-hmm. something that was a huge deal for me reading it and that has been for a lot of other people I've talked about was that it was a superhero comic where I could go and I could find, even if they were mostly subtextual, what really, really felt like same-sex romances. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering in retrospect how much of that coding was deliberate and if you could go back and make any of it textually explicit, would you and what? Um, probably not. Go back and make it explicit, simply because I found it more fun to leave material to the reader's imagination. That's why the, the series has been apparently embraced by, by uh, subsets as as markedly different as uh, the Mormon church and uh, gay rights. Um, the, the thing with Kitty is, you know, you could draw your own conclusions or not. What was important for me in the in the Excalibur moment is it has less to do with the fact that it's it's uh, Courtney and Kitty as woman and girl as Saturnine the epitome of evil seducing a hero and turning her to the dark side, perhaps. The whole idea at the end is that when you, when Kitty drives away in her, in her Jaguar, uh, because what else would Kitty drive but a, a car named after a cat, <laughs> a hunting cat. The, the joke, visual joke, is that you realize they're identical, except that Kitty's much younger. Same hair, same glasses, same face, everything. And you wonder, oh my gosh, is Kitty a proto-Saturnine or vice versa? And especially, mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't that the sort of alternate Earth version of Saturnine, like the evil one, Satire 9 at the time? Oh yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. The argument would then be, well, where does it come next? Um, the flip side is that if you go down to X-Men the end, you will see that the the significance of Kitty's two-term stint as, as POTUS is not that she's the first mutant president of the United States. Ideally, all the way through the, the story, the 36 issues, no, sorry, the 18 issues, the person who's constantly by her side is Rachel. 
And when you get to the White House, you never see who is the first spouse. But the key visual is that one of the kids is a redhead. You know, I don't think I caught that, but that makes perfect sense. The coloring wasn't quite right. Okay. One of the kids should have been a redhead. But yeah, I mean, given their given their dynamic and Excalibur, that completely follows that it could have gone in that direction. Oh, oh totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, and also Kitty is as bound to the Phoenix in her own way as Logan is. Because in the evolution of the X-Men hierarchy, it turns out Logan is as much a part of her ancestry and her life as her parents and you know that's where it starts getting really convoluted and and a joy to completists the universe over but a pain in the ass to editors <laughs> well uh, as people who are completists but, on that side of the equation we love it we love it well the the thing was that that i mean that that's what made ellen page being cast as kitty in my in my mind very a perfect casting, but then for a whole host of reasons that go totally beyond the fact that she's a, a superb actress and a visual match for the character, it's it's simpatico for a whole on a whole bunch of different ironic levels. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, with Kitty, it's it's the the basic idea was that the while she ha- she dated lots of people when she was a- an adolescent, the primal love of her life has always been Rachel. For me, that goes across the board. The disadvantage, of course, is that I'm not the writer anymore, so anything goes. Right. I think at last at last count, she ended up engaged to Star Lord of all people, which was not a direction I would have predicted. But yeah, I, well, I just sort of refuse to acknowledge that at this point. I'm taking an, a conscious denial approach to that one. <laughs> It just waits six months for a new writer or a new editor. It'll evolve. So you were talking a lot about uh, a lot about Kitty Pride, who obviously has been mm-hmm. a focus of of so many parts of your run. Now I know that a lot of our listeners talk about sort of the characters that they most identify with most, the ones they almost get sort of possessive of, defensive of when things they don't feel are right happen. I think we've got those as well. Yeah, like for for Jay, it's totally Cyclops. For me, if I if I had to pick one, which is hard, it would probably be um your portrayal of Longshot, yours and, and Anna Senti's portrayal. But do you well, have a character? Was just basically there to to keep him front and center while Anne and Arthur got got their act together for the second long the second series. Right. Unfortunately, was... it never came to came to pass. But that was the idea. Yeah, I think I've read about that. It was that. a cool character. You didn't want to lose him. Totally. And I, I love your portrayal, too. That one issue when they're in Australia and he uses his psychometry on all the stolen stuff in the Reaver space. One of my mm-hmm. favorites. It's how you, you get everything back to their lost, all the lost toys back to their owners. Yep, on Christmas, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, come on. You think Doctor Who's the only one who could do Christmas stories? Give me a break. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, of course, the one person who gets the one gift she wants is uh, Dazzler with a really cool motorcycle. And for me, that issue is kind of where her spot on the team, like, it had been built up and built up, and that's just sort of where it clicks for me. Like, yes, she is an X-Man, despite her initial reluctance. That's who she is now. I love that Mm -hmm. one. As far as favorite characters, of the ones you've created, did you have any that sort of felt like yours more than others? Or was it just sort of the whole big family? You know, it's hard to say. The problem is I've known these guys for 40 years. 
God help me, <laughs> and created more than my share of them. You know, I could say, yeah, Kitty is is in, intensely cool, but I can turn right around and say Mystique is just as cool and a whole lot nastier. Everyone talks about, oh, the great the great passion is Rogue and Gambit, except that my original idea was Gambit and Kitty, which I started playing with when we were doing X-Men Forever. So I could say the same about Beast. I could say the same about even Iceman, though we didn't use him as much as I'd hoped. I refuse to play favorites anymore with the X-Men cast because I've known them too long. I, I have, I've bonded with them too long and whoever you love is fine by me. <laughs> and I mean, I think there's pretty much a fan of every single character out there. There's every single character is somebody's favorite, which is one of the things I, I love about well, your, your run over the years. Well, they should be. So speaking They're- of favorite characters, mm-hmm. this brings me to one of our favorite things. I'm going to move away from the main characters about your run. And that's the bit characters, because they've almost always got names. They've almost always got sort of snippets of backstory that really heavily implies that they've got lives outside of the comics. That's been something that we've ended up kind of fixating on in the podcast to the extent that there are, I think, two random walk-on Hellfire Club guards, Harvey and Janet, who've sort of become our unofficial mascots. Yeah, they were in um, the first time the Hellfire Club shows up before the They're Dark in the Phoenix. Massachusetts Academy. Yeah. And... I'm wondering how deliberate that is and how do you choose the ones to end up coming back to? There's I, I, uh, Angus McWhorter is the one I always remember, the hovercraft guy who Proteus ends up uh, taking over. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, like yeah, I said, we, we I fixate thinking, on these. I, was, I actually find myself thinking of the cop and the nurse. Um, From New Mutants. In Bill, Bill's and my Demon Bear arc where they get turned into Native Americans against their will and end up having to work at the, at, at the school because they don't exist outside of it anymore. They end up on Muir Island, don't they, eventually? Eventually. Yeah. They're, they're, the, problem, the problem with the X-Men is you've got this huge estate in New York. You've got Muir Island. You've got uh, Excalibur's. Well, they used to have their lighthouse. But there's never any staff. Somebody's got to clean it up. Somebody's got to do the laundry. Somebody's got to go go out and buy the food. It's like even Alfred and Stately Wayne Manor could not get away with all of that. And, uh, you know, Tony Stark can only build so many robots. So I just began to gather in peripheral characters to fill the gap. Stevie Hunter to, to teach dance because mm-hmm. kids need to have physical exercise. But the thing that always that attracted me to Marvel, much more so than DC, when I was a kid, was the fact that in every instance, you had the FF occasionally, Thor occasionally, interacting with normal people. Going down this, you know, the, my favorite is Thor getting into a, a yellow cab and just being driven through Manhattan, an old checker, because it was the only one big enough to hold him. <laughs> I was thinking of in uh, Walter Simonson's run where he tries a creamsicle in Central Park near the beginning. And then 
gives it to the Thor frog. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, you need, to me, you need moments of verisimilitude. When I was like 12, I spent an afternoon wandering around the east side of Manhattan trying to find Del Floria's tailor shop. Because I figured the establishing shop of the, I knew nothing that it, about it being stock footage. I figured that was an establishing shot. Therefore, that was the view of the United Nations building from around where Del Floria's was. <laughs> so that meant Del Floria must be somewhere up in the, the, the mid-upper 50s on 3rd Avenue. That's the coolness of watching a show that's filmed on location. Elementary, for example. Uh, last year had a wonderful scene where Holmes and Watson and, and the, the police captain are walking down the street and I'm looking at a, a Manhattan street that I know and I remember that snowstorm because I'd been out in it three weeks earlier. Miles, you haven't seen Leverage yet, but when you get there, there's an entire season that's filmed in Portland in Boston Drag and it's a really unreal thing to see. Oh man, yeah, Portland's our, our home base here. Well, but that, that's the ideal thing is that, you know, it's like real touchstones make the fiction, the fantasy that much more embraceable. And for those who live in the neighborhood, that much more enjoyable, even though the actual filming of the scene drives you absolutely crazy. <laughs> the same goes in comics. If you can take a moment of reality, if if you can have if you can take the kids from the new mutants cast and have them at a mixer with kids from other schools around Salem Center whether they're public or private where they can interact with kids their own age where they can stop being superheroic icons and start being teenagers then hopefully the teenagers who are reading the book will have that sense of, oh man, I've been there. I know that. Wow. If I were a superhero, that would be, or not. If I knew somebody who was a superhero or a mutant, it would make the scene more relevant. It would make the, the characters more easily identifiable with the audience and hopefully would create a reality where the audience would want to come that much would more would be that much more eager to come back for more and to to keep everybody at a distance by having your heroes based on an island or in a you know up on a hill away from everything that seemed that seems to to me it defeats the purpose it's like okay stately wayne manor why you know all you're telling me is that batman's a billionaire the bruce wayne's a billionaire who will never have any relationship with anyone he's likely to meet in the comic you know um even superman as a reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper interacts with normal people but again that's that's why 
when we did throwaways, I did a, a scene in an, one for a DC where he shows up for, he brings Chinese food uh, to dinner at a friend's house, except that the Chinese food is from Hong Kong. <laughs> he just flew over, got it and flew back. That to me is, it tells you something about the character. It tells you something about the reality, but it's something you can immediately identify with as audience. And that's what I want the audience to do. I want them to bond with that reality, to, to look at it and say, heck, they face some of the same questions and concerns and fears that I do as a reader. Therefore, how they resolve it, the choices they make to resolve it are relevant to me. If you can't make that that sort of leap, then what's the point of reading it? And I know you mentioned the idea of the new mutants sort of being in the real world like that, them being identifiable with. And I mean, that's something that I thought was just such a, a brilliant move to have that book. Because, you know, when you have a lot of your readers that are younger like that, they love reading about the adult characters, the X-Men, but having characters that are facing some of the same individual struggles that they are. Like, I know when I was growing up reading New Mutants, it was very much that. It just... You start thinking about, well, how would how would I handle this differently than like how uh, Sam or Amara is handling mm -hmm. it? You know, because their realities, you know, yes, I didn't grow up in Nova Roma, but I'm dealing with some of the same stuff that Magma or whoever is. And mm -hmm. I love that. Well, but the other side of the coin is also it, it served a f an absolutely primal function, which was it gave Charlie something to do. I mean, what's Charlie going to teach Wolverine? <laughs> I remember the time he tried to give Wolverine demerits after they came back from their big world tour. Yep. And, or Storm for that matter, because, you know, when, when we started the series, um, I basically made her my age, which was fine in 1975, but by 2017, 2016, it's getting a little silly. <laughs> you know, she's a lot more mature than she looks. So you have to, the idea, as I said, is to find a touchstone for each level of the audience. And again, going back to what happened with Scott and Madeline, the whole point of the argument of the, the equation was if you come back for issue 300, you can take a character from the new mutants and have them graduate up to the X-Men or alternately decide they don't want to be a superhero at all and just go home. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of different choices and possibilities in life. And the, the hope with the new mutants was to encompass them all. The, the, some would stick around, some wouldn't, some would be heroes, some might decide to just get a job uh, and move on from there. It, it's, um, again, make the comic a reflection of the reality. So we've talked a lot about the writing of the comics, and something I feel mm -hmm. like a massive gap in what we've brought up in discussing them is the art. Mm -hmm. And something Miles and I noticed when we started talking about X-Men is we've both got a very solid idea of what the X-Men look like. And they're very closely associated, usually specific characters with specific artists based on when we came in, based on versions that we really liked. 
And I'm wondering, when you think of sort of your platonic ideal of the X-Men in your mind, who's drawing them? I don't choose anymore. I mean, come on. How do you, how do you differentiate realistically between Dave Cockrum's X-Men and John Byrne's X-Men and John Bolton's X-Men and Alan Davis's X-Men and Walt Simonson's and Bill Sienkiewicz's and Jim Lee's and Frank Miller's and Art Adams. <laughs> I mean, you run down the list of people who have worked, I, who I've worked, had the ridiculous good fortune to work with on this series. It's like a who's who of the top 50 artists in in modern comics history. You know, Alan, Alan Davis is brilliant, but, but how do you differentiate between him and Frank? Frank is brilliant, but how do you differentiate between his presentation of, of Karma and Bill Sienkiewicz's? And Bill is brilliant, but God, the way Arthur drew her in the Asgard Wars, holy crumb cakes, you know, just the whole weight loss regime that, that Karma went under. You can't, I find I can't. I refuse to, to, to choose in a situation like that because each time I do, I end up going, ah, oh, but then... So I, I, my cheap answer is the guy I haven't worked with yet. <laughs> so, or is, gal, I should. So I guess following up on that, I haven't worked with you know, there have <laughs> been a lot of amazing artists on the book. Are there any who you've who you'd specifically really like to see and like to work with on an X title and haven't yet? Well, Jack Kirby would have been fun. Oh, seriously. Uh, Neil Adams would be fun. Um, Carlos would be fun. Pacheco. I tend to love, you know, I tend to bond with the artists of the era that I worked with simply because I like their storytelling better than I like a lot of contemporary stuff. The sort of approach to, to storytelling has evolved, I guess you could say, over the last 15, 20 years, rather s- distinctly. But out of nowhere, a uh, year and a half ago, I got linked up with Todd Noak on uh, on Nightcrawler, and that was that that turned out to be absolute joy. So you never know. Um, I'd love to do another, for example, another Kitty series with Babio and Sosa, uh, another mechanic series, but that. You know, the odds are there's there's so many elements that have to come together to do something like that. It's um, and there's never a guarantee. I mean, I, I've Alan Alan pitched an Excalibur uh, series with me a few a while back uh, that Marvel decided to pass on because we were too expensive. Oh man, uh, if if we could publish that ourselves and make that happen, that would be amazing. Yeah. Well, it's just the, their perception, you know, who knows? It's just their perception of the marketplace, uh, of how 
how the work would fit into the the overall world. Um, you know, uh, Marvel thought uh, Salvador La Roca was not that good for a number of years until, you know, my work with him on Fantastic Four and then Extreme made them suddenly realize, holy cow, he's really good. And the next thing we knew, um, he was grabbed away uh, to work with Bill Jemis on uh, uh, Namor. And then, uh, I believe, on Iron, Iron Man. With, was it with Brian? I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember. Um, I think so. But, you know, it's... Uh, there, all I can say is the, the artists I've worked with are, have been for the most part among the best in contemporary comics history. And, uh, more fun than I care to think about, but Yes, other people want to play too. Darn it. <laughs> I guess. So given that, I guess I've got one final question. Um, and that's what advice you would give to writers coming into the X-Men now to handle. If you could either give them advice for going forward or, you know, dictate any one aspect of their approach, what would you want to see them do? Well, the problem is that the hallmark of X-Men, the, the thing that made it so once in a lifetime, literally, is that Dave and I got together in exactly the right place and exactly the right time. I mean, Len and Dave had just created the new X-Men with Giant Size 1 with, I hate to say it, a little help from me. (laughs) A little bit more than a gopher roll this time? No, I got... I came up with the idea for how to get rid of uh, Genosha. Not Genosha. Uh, Krakoa. This... Sorry? Krakoa? Krakoa. Thank you. Yes. How do you get rid of an, isle- an island? Just sever the geomagnetic bonds that anchor, anchor the island to the uh, planet. Earth keeps spinning on its axis and orbiting around the sun and uh, Krakoa got left behind. You wait one minute and suddenly he's 50 miles out in space, having a hard time figuring out where to go next. <laughs> but I mean, that's, but the, the thing was that for the first dozen issues bi-monthly, we were, we were an afterthought. No one knew what we were. No one knew what we had. No one knew if it would succeed or not. It was just something that, that Dave wanted to do, that Marvel figured was a good experiment. Had anybody known what was in, in store for it, I wouldn't have been allowed within a mile of it. And Len wouldn't have given it up. So by the time they realized what they had, we were we were on our roll and, and going full throttle. The thing was that we found ourselves able to get away with almost anything. 
And each time we had a weird idea, nobody said no, up to and including Gene. And if you look at the, the first arc of issues by me and Dave and me and John, me and Dave again, and then me and Paul, those 60-odd issues were ridiculous amount of fun. And relatively untouched by anybody else. We were on our own. That cannot happen now with the X-Men. It's got 40 years of history behind it. Nobody will let a writer and an artist have their own function on their own without supervision anymore. And the shame with that, I think, is that, that you lose potential for inspiration and excitement and unexpected wonder. Um, I don't think there's, I don't, I really don't think there's anywhere in the Marvel universe now that, that is so unexplored that will allow the creators that level of freedom, uh, which is, which is kind of a shame. I guess the closest perhaps would be the new Ms. Marvel, the young, the young Islamic girl. Oh yeah. By Juwilla Wilson. That is such a good book. It, but it still functions within the overall Avengers embrace universe. Yeah. It's very much embedded with her understanding that she's part of this, this big, you know, contiguous universe. Yeah. And I think the, the thing with the X-Men was we made our own universe. We, we didn't want, we couldn't use the Cree, the Skrull, the, this, the, that, anything that was FF property or Avengers property. So we invented our own and that, that suited us fine. It suited Dave and me fine. That's a moment that I don't think can happen anymore. There's just too many, too many pairs of eyes looking over your shoulder, both within the, the Marvel publishing hierarchy and then the Marvel TV hierarchy and the Marvel studio hierarchy and then the Disney hierarchy. You know, it's, it's a different, it's, it is a different world. So any writer, artist, creator coming into it, to work on the project has to deal with that world as it is rather than having the, the luxury. And it was a luxury of being able to make it, make up our own. This is the, the joy and the frustration of being God help me a really old fart. <laughs> when I can, I mean, I got hired by Stan, you know, which not many people can say anymore. And his deal was, you got to do, you got to turn in the jobs on time. You got to sell, ideally, and be nice if they were good. (laughs) (laughs) And if you could do that, you were left alone because 
as Stan put it, he was publisher of the company. He had more important things to worry about, like the shit that didn't work. And uh, if, you know, you were hired to be a writer, to tell stories, you work with your artist to tell the stories. If you do that, I'll leave you alone. If you can't do that, I'll fire you and get somebody new who can. Um, and that was pretty much it. There was no embedded structure on Marvel style or corporate, not corporate, but, you know, what team-ups were doing this week or what crossovers were doing this week. Iron Man was the story of a guy who put on a suit of armor and went out and saved the world. Or a billionaire who put on a suit of armor. Uh, the X-Men were a bunch of ragtag kids living out in the suburbs of New York trying to save the world except that everybody hated them because they were creepy. <laughs> because it, you know, being bitten by a radioactive spider was a more plausible rationale for becoming a superhero or supervillain than my mom met my dad and their genes came together and I came out weird. Well, that's creepy. If you can come out weird, that means your brother or your sister could come out weird. And what will happen when you have children? They could be really weird. There were so many different buttons that you could press and and streets down which you could wander with the X-Men that, that weren't necessarily available to you if you were doing Avengers or the FF. You could say, well, you know, I was born with this talent. Yeah, but that makes you weird, man. How do you deal with that? I mean that the in a way the, the the one one of the stories I'm I I am most proud of is a new mutant story where that um Butch Geist did Drew Oh yeah the uh We were only fooling Yeah the one and with the kid who made the light sculptures about right a kid who's a mutant who comes to Salem Center and is he's a lap a latchkey kid because his parents have to work hard to pay for the, the house and the school and everything else. And he doesn't know about Xavier's school because it's a secret and he's trying to fit in. And he figures the way to fit in is to emulate the kids around him. So he makes fun of mutants. Unfortunately, the people he's making fun of mutants to are the mutants, the new mutants. And one thing leads to another, and at the end, he kills himself. And Kitty has to, Kitty draws the short story to read the eulogy. And the point is that everyone in the story got so wrapped up in looking at the surface guy and thinking, what an asshole, that they never asked the question, why is he acting this way? You know, you'd think with access to telepaths and emotional, you know, with power, people of the power and experience that the new mutants would have had, one of them might have noticed it, that 
why this kid was different. But none of them did. They were totally human about it. In other words, teenagers, in other words, assholes. <laughs> no, that's what you do when you're a teenager. You make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. But in this instance, the mistake has a consequence. And there's no way to turn back time and fix it. That, to me, is what made makes the mutants different from the X-Men because you like to think the X-Men wouldn't have made the mistake. But more importantly, being kids, it has to be a learning experience. And it, if you do stories like that, even occasionally, if you put the reader in a position where they can read that and think, oh my gosh, I've been in a position like that, not with superpowers, but with something. Um, then that's, you know, that makes the, the act of writing, the craft of writing, the telling of these stories <sighs> worth it to me as a writer and hopefully valuable to, to the re to the audience. Um, you know, it, it's, one should not feel, one should not take these stories and these characters for granted just because they're corporate. But it does, it seems to me, get, seems to me, get harder to be individual in, your, in one's approach because of the need to, to hit company slash corporate benchmarks along the way. I mean, by benchmarks, I mean production benchmarks, sales or, or uh, stories uh, points. Resolving that is a challenge that every, that every writer who comes to, this, to the business has to, to make for themselves. Um, like I said, I was lucky because in my day it was a lot easier. Now, with the weight of material, it, it will be harder for the next generation of writers. But on the other hand, they might come up with ideas that make it all the more exciting and worth reading. Certainly hope so. And I mean, so much of the toy box that they have to play with is just stuff that came out of the stuff that you and all the various artists and Louise Simonson uh, created back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, well, but that's, you know, you could say modern, modern jets came out of the, the work that was done in the thirties with, with uh, racing, with racing planes and what have you, you know, or uh, down at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, but whether you turn it into a 747, which is, to me, absolutely beautiful, or an Airbus 380, which is not, <laughs> you know, that's the question. Sometimes the rocket goes up, sometimes not. Uh, the trick is if, you know, how do you make it better the next time? How do you, how do you energize the sense of wonder and excitement? 
and and keep the audience sitting on the edge of their seat. For me, the most flattering and satisfying element of of writing the X-Men was the fact that for a brief shining moment in the 80s, when we were at the top of the list, kids would line up literally the third Thursday of every month. They would be they would be at the, the front door of the comic book shops because they couldn't wait until after school to buy the comics. They had to buy them the minute the store opened because they didn't want them to sell out because they wanted to see what happened next. And the way that I started reading, I was actually really fortunate in that regard because I came into your work from the 70s and 80s, um, probably when I was a kid in the late 80s and early 90s. And so with me, I could just I could just marathon them. I could just be like, what happens next? Oh, hey, here's the next issue. And I was even luck- uh, luckier. See, I, I got to build on that in, in the late 90s and early aughts. So I mm-hmm. had I had, you know, 20 years of catching up. Yeah, but see, that's not as much fun because (laughs) it's, it's, it's all, yes, it's wonderful. It's all there. But for me, the excitement is like, oh my God, I have to wait a week to see the next John Oliver. That's not fair. (laughs) And yet when it comes, oh, that God, he's really funny. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, it's there is a moment where having to wait. I remember seeing Empire Strikes Back and thinking, at the end, you know, Luke's lost his hand. The 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 uh, rebellion is in deep shit. Darth is winning right, left, and center. What the hell's happening next? Little did we know it was Ewoks, but there you go. Um, but it was like, we got to wait two years. Oh man, that's no fair, but you're well, you know, we were willing to wait because it was like, we were invested in the, in the characters invested in the story. Lucas hit the button. And that I think is what, that I think is the the key for Marvel, the key for the X-Men is you create characters that the audience bonds with, that you you like as people and want to know more about them. That, you know, how, how will Logan relate to the fact that Gene is dead, not dead, this, that, the other? What... What will happen next with Kitty and Rachel, if anything? What will happen with Bobby and whomever? Now that I guess Bobby's out. Um, what does Storm want? Does her heart still go skip a beat when she looks at, at Forge or not? You want to care about them. You want the audience to care about them. You want them to come back, not because, not just because you maybe have a cool artist or a cool villain, but because you want to see what's going to happen with their lives. What, what choice will they make and will it make you feel better? You know, one of the, the best moments, sorry, I'm paid by the word and babbling. <laughs> oh, no worries at all. No. But one of the moments I'm more, most proud of 
John Romita Jr. did this. Uh, Colossus dumps Kitty. And Logan and Kurt grab him and take him to a bar. And Logan's going to read him the riot act. Except that in the bar is Juggernaut. And in the process of, of the evening, Colossus, Peter trips over Juggernaut and the two big guys get in each other's face. And the next thing you know, the bar is totally trashed. <laughs> Just rubble. Yeah. Rubble. Well, you know, but because Juggernaut's a straight guy, you know, he's a, he's a good hearted dude. Even if he is a villain, he pays for it, <laughs> you know, gives the guy money to fix it up. But Nightcrawler wants to get involved, and Logan just says, no, nah, sit down. If Jargonaut hadn't done this, I would have. This is where Peter's got to learn consequences. And, and he's got to do some growing up. And that's the fun, is you can take these guys and put them in positions that mirror moments in real life, whether it's, it's joy, stupidity, brilliance, excitement, heartbreak, and figure out how to make them work. Ideally, if they can do it, as readers have said more than once in the ma- in fan mail, I can do it. And I think that's exactly the way it was for me. I mean, I was, you know, my parents had been divorced a little bit before I started reading X-Men. So I kind of felt a little lost in my life and coming into your run, coming into this long box from my father of all this X-Men, all this new mutants and being able to identify with these characters and the fact that, you know, when you're a kid, everything is just super intense. And so the fact that like when a breakup happens there, what helps a character learn his lesson is, you know, a giant supervillain fight. Like, that just fit. And I mean, you know, just seeing all the new mutants together and all these characters basically being chosen family for one another at a time when my family felt a little rocky, that was huge as well. Mm-hmm. All, all these different types of people from different backgrounds being able to identify with, you know, people who were former supervillains, who were goddesses, or, you know, even who were from different socioeconomic backgrounds, who were women or older people or younger people. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's so much of the strength of superhero comics in general, but I think in particular what you brought to the X-Men and the New Mutants and all of those books. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, I'm going to jump on this too. One of the things that we always talked about, and this is, I, I think this came up too a lot with, with Annie Nesenti, the this podcast gives us a chance to say thank you to people whose work has influenced us a lot. And I know for Miles, you grew up reading Chris's run on X-Men. And I guess my <laughs> my angle on this is a little bit different. Um, I mean, your work was so formative to me as a reader. I cannot imagine that you would remember this, but in 2004, I met you at Wizard World Chicago and it was my first convention. I was 21. I was just out of college. I was completely intimidated. I was volunteering because I couldn't afford admission otherwise. And Mm -hmm. um, I was going around to editors and writers with this just embarrassingly awful cover letter in the form of a comic script and saying, I'm not not pitching and I'm not looking for a job, but I'm really interested in comics as either a field of study or a career. Can I pick your brain? And um, I cut you at the end of this very, very long signing, and you were obviously exhausted. 
I was, you know, I went through my usual spiel and was like, you know, can I do this? Can I, you know, buy you a drink after the show and ask you questions about how comics work? And you said, well, I don't have time after the show, but if you've got about 15 minutes right now, I'll tell you all the really important stuff about writing comics. <laughs> and I do what I was talking about. Um, and you, well, you gave me a bunch of really concretely useful advice. And then you showed me these new Alan Davis pages you just got. And I think from Uncanny X-Men, I remember it was, it mm-hmm. was, it was Nightcrawler in the danger room fighting pirates and almost kissing Rachel Summers. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think I told you about this retrospectively kind of terrible story idea I had, and you you dragged over C.B. Sobolski, who was editing X-Men Unlimited right now, and made him listen to it. And I had a lot of really good conversations at that show, but that was one that really stuck with me because you were one of my heroes. You were one of the writers whose work had gotten me into comics. You're this absolute giant, and you were so welcoming. And it was the first time comics had really felt concretely like a world I could maybe be part of or something I could actually do, not just sort of this big, vague aspiration on the horizon. And I think like 20 months later, I got my first job at Dark Horse. And so I thank you so much for that. I don't think I would have kept pursuing that without that conversation. And... um yeah, obviously that's part of where we are now as the podcast, but that's well, you no, as a creator that, were that, that's, so that's exactly, fundamental I mean, to that's, yeah. In a way, that's for me that it's only taken like forty years to figure this out. The way to behave to 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 present it, the medium and the craft to to people who want to try move ahead with it. I make yes, I make jokes saying you know. What, what advice would you give to someone who wants to work in comics? Get a day job. <laughs> but part of it is you've got to have this mad determination that the, the stories you want to tell and, and, and the, the characters you want to create or play with are, are worth the time, worth your time, worth your heart. God, decades ago, at this little convention outside, out at LaGuardia Airport, this guy comes up with, you know, and he was a Star Trek fan. He loved Star Trek. He was passionate. He had this whole Bible worked up. He wanted to tell stories about the guys in the basement, the guys who worked in the, in the, the lower module of the Enterprise, engineering, you know, who cleaned the floors, who rewired the, the electrics. You know, who did Kirk call when they, they needed, you know, when uh, the plumbing didn't, I mean, that giant room in the movies where, where uh, Kirk and, and Scotty get dumped in, um, I guess, the first one. Who cleans that? You know, things like that. He wanted to tell stories from that perspective. From the, from the, the red shirts who get killed off every five minutes. And it, it was a good pitch. And, oh God, Howard Chaikin like looks at him and says, what do you want to do Star Trek for? Just change the names. Do it as your own stuff. This is good. Frank, Frank Miller's standing there and he says exactly the same thing. And the guy says, no, no, I can't do that. Why not? This is good stuff. He said, no, I want to do Star Trek. The important thing for him was to be part of the this the greater universe. And it's such a weird feeling that part on one level you want to say, screw that, create your own universe. Be, write your own Game of Thrones. Don't emulate, you know, don't try and fit into George's. And some people listen and some people don't. But the key is 
finding that instinct in you as a creator to listen to the person. And then you start pounding them on their heads so they'll do, do the right thing. But the fun is listening. The fun is, is, is taking them seriously and giving of oneself as a creator to the same extent that they are willing to give of themselves and invest in you as the reader. It's a symbiotic relationship, like it or not. And the nice thing about comics, thank God, oddly enough, is through conventions, you have the opportunity to go out there and be accessible. And the hope is that you come across as more than just a butthead behind a table scribbling signatures on a book and shuffling people down the line as quickly as possible. <laughs> you know, because trust me, I've, I've made enough of a fool of myself meeting writers and actors that I've admired passionately. It's taken years to get to the point where I can actually behave decently <laughs> with, with, with people who come up to me. And it is, it is, it can be a challenge because you're tired and it's late and, and you really just want to go home and, and, you know, fall asleep if not write the Alan, Alan Davis pages. <laughs> but you never know when, you know, you spend five minutes and it turns out to be uh, something that uh, 15 years later is a wonderful memory for someone. The fact that you have that opportunity is ridiculously cool. And the fact that it derives from words and pictures on a page is so ridiculously absurd that, that you, you know, it's just like, where'd that come from? You know, it, the, the thing about comics is in 22 pages, well, 18 pages, depending on which era you're in, <laughs> you have the opportunity to create worlds. I mean, the thing about working with Dave Cockrum was I could pitch him anything. And in one issue, you could have binary stars surrounded by a fleet, two battling fleets of alien starships. And yet, two issues later, you can have a space shuttle crashing into the atmosphere and a woman being transformed into Phoenix. And then an issue after that, leprechauns. <laughs> Where did leprechauns come from? Well, Ireland, apparently. Yeah. Well, there you go. Cassidy Keep. But there's no limitation. John Byrne and I could create anything. Look, a double spread of the Savage Land. You know, Storm reading Wolverine the Riot Act and Wolverine listening to her. All it takes is imagination and a skill with a number two pencil. And you've got the omniverse at hand. Man. Things that 
are just a matter of me asking the artist to draw something and the artist drawing it that if we put it on film would have cost 15, 20 million dollars in effects costs and taken God knows how many lines of code and who knows how much actual physical time to create. We can do it in an afternoon. You can go from Westchester to the Shi'ar Empire. Yeah. And back again. <laughs> and I mean, I can send Gene to the far side of the galaxy, eat a planet, destroy a starship, and come back to Earth to say hello to her parents. So well spent afternoon. <laughs> but from all that can come the movies that make people go, wow. I mean, that's, I think, my one regret about the X movies that Fox and, and Brian Singer have done is they're wonderful films and the casting has been breathtakingly brilliant. But boy, I miss the aliens. <laughs> I mean, it, I would love to see the Shi'ar up there. I would love to see some of the crazy intergalactic stuff we got into. I'm still waiting like, for my Star Jammers movie, yeah. Well, Star Jammers, but more importantly... Phoenix done right, eating the planet. And yes, it would be a horrible thing, but imagine that scene with perhaps Famke Janssen. Oh, man. With the emotional consequences of, of her realizing, oh, my God, what have I done? And yeah, you kind of almost had it in X3, but, you know, not quite. It, it just, eh, just disintegrating lots of fake mutants in the background, not quite as an oomphal moment as, as one would have wished. Right. You have that, that, that duality of her and, and Logan. And for me, as the, the progenitor of the moment, you had two performers who could do it. You had the moment I wanted more set up so that the moment would hit you like a like a punch. Yeah, I Instead think Instead of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think done right telling that story, I, I don't know if you could do it in just one movie just because there's so much build up to the characters' relationships, to their struggles, to the dynamic between all of them. That's oddly enough what I said to Brian Singer about Days of Future Past. I didn't see how the hell he could do it in less than two movies. But he did. Yeah. That's why he's a trained professional and that regard and I'm not. <laughs> but that's the point is you, you, with me and an artist, words and pictures, we can reach out and have our moment with our audience that's right here, right now. And if we get it right, wonderful. If we get it wrong, well, there's another one due in three weeks, four at the most, and we'll fix it then. <laughs> and that is ridiculously cool it's not wait five years for the film it's not invest a quarter billion dollars and and more talent and more skill than you can take shake a stick at and you'll have that moment for two hours but you gotta wait another three years for the next one whereas in the comic boom it's right there that is a wonderful, wonderful amount of fun. And it's to be part of it is a gift you don't appreciate while you're there. 
And when you're not there, it's just, oh, I shoulda, I woulda, I coulda, damn it. Well, for what it's worth, over the course of however many decades, I mean, so many of those moments, those were you. And thank you so much for for making so many cool things for us to talk about week after week. On that note, speaking of moments and moving on, I think we are about at time. Sorry about that. Oh, no. No, no, it's okay. This was fantastic. Thank you again so much for making the time for this, for coming on, and for, you know, 20 years of amazing, amazing X-Men. Yeah, more. Thank you very much for appreciating them. And uh, fingers crossed, I'm not done yet. Here's hoping. And uh, speaking of, if you ever want to be on the show again, we would absolutely love to talk about all sorts of things. There's just so much incredible material, so much incredible behind the scenes stuff. Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Well, yeah, well, take care, Chris. It's been wonderful talking to you and hopefully again before too long. Okay. Man, I, how, how, do we, how do we follow that up? Can we follow that up? Should we just stop? Should this be the last episode? I mean, 100 is a nice round number, but yeah, that was We do still have amazing. to do Inferno. We can't stop before Inferno. Yeah. But, and then there's going to be the next stuff, so I guess we continue on. But, wow. But, wow. Seriously, talking to Chris Claremont, listeners, that's been our dream from the start. We never knew if we were going to get big enough for that to happen. We never knew. Well, we never knew if the timing was going to line up, because I've been emailing with his assistant for more than a year at this point, trying to find a date and a time that we could all do, and our producer could do, and Chris could do, and this was the first time it actually all lined up. So that's kind of some perfect serendipity, right? Yeah, there. It, yeah. it was kind of spectacularly serendipitous. But yeah, so that's 100 episodes. So I guess we just wanted to say, no, normally this is the part where I talk like Apocalypse or whatever, and we, we, we thank a or, couple or of I, listeners. Or I yell at you. Or, or Jay yells at you. Man, we should have gotten Chris to do that. We should have gotten him to angrily narrate at us. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we want to kind of extend that more broadly at this point, because when we set out to make this podcast, I think our goal, what counted as unprecedented, ridiculous success was what, 50 listeners, not including our parents. Exactly. And here we are with, uh, you know, more. There are a lot of you. There are a frighteningly large number of you. Like you are a small nation state. And getting to connect with everyone at, you know, at conventions, through email, on the comments on our blog, whatever has just been incredible. Like finding this community of people who all love X-Men for so many different reasons. Yeah, you're all really awesome too. It's weird. Yeah. So everybody, thank you for giving Jay and I the chance to do this for a hundred episodes and counting. And of course we plan on continuing to do this for as long as, you know, podcasting exists and unless the Mcron Crystal ends all reality or whatever. Coolest job ever seriously so it has been a pleasure for 100 episodes we're looking to 100 200 300 however many more you're all amazing well we love you all dearly there are also some folks we want to take a moment to thank by name without whom this you know wouldn't be made for you and out there in the first place our producer kyle yount also produces kaiju cast who is in here on what is normally a day off to record this episode and has been just fantastic and our uh, original producer, Bobby Roberts, who probably this show would not exist without, without Oh, it him, definitely wouldn't. Yeah, without no him question. saying, hey, I know you, you don't know what you're doing, but I'll help you with everything and make it sound really good. So, Bobby, I know we haven't worked together in a while, but thank you for making Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men a thing. Our fantastic, fantastic artist and collaborator, David Wynn, who I, I think by the time this episode goes up, this is going to have been announced, who is going to be making his first U.S. convention appearance with us at Emerald City Comic Con in April. And our administrative assistant, sorry, administratrix, Tina Abate, who helps keep us vaguely sort of organized. Uh, without her, we would really not be at all. Also, our off-air fantastic partners in crime, Katie and Anna, who manage to stay sane when we go on and on and on and on and on and on, 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 on about the X-Men for, you know, four-hour stretches as we're working on this, or just because that's kind of what we do. Exactly. So we're feeling really happy and really grateful and kind of um, still high after that interview. But I suppose we can't go on forever, especially since I suspect this is going to be a very long 
long episode. So I guess, Jay, do you want to take it out? I do. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content as well, visual companions to every episode along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is ad-free because of our amazing listener support on Patreon. If you'd like to keep us on the air and ad-free forever, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Thanks again to our amazing, amazing, amazing guest this episode, the one and only Chris Claremont. And, you know, for making X-Men a thing other than some teenagers in black and yellow. Not that there was a problem with that, but, you know, it turned into more. And for sending the Sentinels to fight the sun. Oh, my God. I said That is not my very favorite thing we learned this episode, but it's really high up there. Next week, we'll be back with the new mutants as they make a new frenemy head into space and find themselves caught in spider's web. Spider's web.